This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Gist is sponsored by Friday Night Tykes. Gear up for a new season of the most controversial show on television. For these 10-year-old boys, playing a man's sport comes with a very high price. Friday Night Tykes. New season premieres January 20th at 9 on Esquire Network. And by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 14th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Oh, the indignity, the shame. Former Egyptian strongman, president actually, not just strongman, erstwhile rich man too, and we'll get to that. He got some good news. His conviction was overturned by an Egyptian court, but the facts that came out weren't good for him. We now know what he was spending his money on. His expense reports have been aired. So sometimes it's the telling detail. It's the one thing that you spend money on that will dog you forever. Like Tyco CEO Dennis Kozlowski. Remember that guy? There's only one reason of all the corrupt CEOs. There's only one reason I remember Dennis Kozlowski. It's the reason you remember him if you do. The shower curtain. The $6,000 shower curtain. It's also something with a pair of jeggings maybe. Not quite sure about that. But once you have that dollar value to the item, then you're sunk for life. And that's what happened with Mubarak. Yeah. Did he repress his enemies? Sure. Was he totally undemocratic? Yeah. Was he a horrible guy who had a secret service who did his bidding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what else? He spent $5,455 on four Lazy Boy recliners, $6,336 on a marble mosaic for a son's bathroom, over $2,000 for a chess set. He bought a wing for one of his daughters, a mausoleum for a dead grandson. Can't fault the guy for that. But let's go back to the Lazy Boy recliners. This is just the damning expense item. Even if they were Lazy Man recliners, you just don't look good. You don't look like the powerful strongman who's frequently depicted in a military uniform. Form if you go around spending $5,000 on lazy boy recliners. Oh, you lazy, lazy boy. On the show today, a Fitbit revisit. I take the necessary steps to give personal activity trackers another chance. Those steps, number 3,376, by the way. And in the spiel, the hard choices regarding airing the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, the musical version. But first, Mitt and Jeb and Huck and Marco and Rand, Republicans, some with kind of normal names like Chris and Scott, are lining up and considering a run for the presidency. Mitt won't quit. Every time he runs, he learns, said a close Mitt Romney supporter who spoke to the former Massachusetts governor about the idea of doing it again in 2016. Then there's Mike Huckabee, quit his Fox show to explore a presidential run because a weekly show in front of a studio audience of 19 people does take a lot out of you. Jeb Bush has founded the Right to Rise PAC. Maybe you heard about its Spanish version, which is also for some reason called the Right to Rise PAC. And... 
Then, of course, there's the idea of Scott Walker. I'm compelled by him. Raihan Salam is the author of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream. He's not running for president, but he is a columnist for Slate. Hello, Raihan. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. So the Washington Post had a headline, Romney Huckabee Walker, meaning Scott Walker of Wisconsin, who's who's most important? And uh, I think the answer was the right one, which is Scott Walker. (laughs) But should we think that Romney or Huckabee are important at all for the 2016 nomination? I definitely think they are for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So Mike Huckabee hasn't been office for a really long time. Uh, He was best known on the national stage for the fact that he was once fat and then became skinny. But he also performed pretty darn well uh, in 2008 to a lot of people's surprise, partly because he had a really strong connection to Southern evangelical voters. Uh, He did well enough with him, and that's a big, big chunk of the GOP primary electorate uh, and, it, you know, it's it's a crucial constituency. So having a strong connection to those voters just automatically makes you a serious guy. Now, it's not clear that he's still going to be their candidate of choice, but I'd say that he shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. Let's move on to um, Mitt Romney. Now, Jennifer Rubin in The Washington Post, and that was the headline I quoted, said, in her informal survey of 15 GOP insiders, some with other candidates and some unaffiliated, I did not find a single person convinced Romney was actually running. And also, she goes on to say, and most weren't excited by it. What do you What do you hear? I think that over the last couple of days, I've been hearing that he is really serious about it. And I wrote a column for Slate uh, some months ago in which I urged Mitt Romney to run. And I've got to say, I wrote that column partly because I didn't think he was going to do it. And now I'm having second thoughts. So the argument that I made in that column was that, look, uh, Mitt Romney, if he wants to run again and he wants to run as a candidate, who is running on an economic platform that will serve the interests of poor and working class Americans, uh, I would be all for a run. But he'd have to do it that way. My thing is that, look, I'm happy for anyone to get in the fray. I would be happy for, like, uh, you know, uh, Pat Benatar to run for president if she was going to run on that kind of a platform. Uh, So I'm agnostic about, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, Mitt Romney has lots of liabilities, but I really think it's about the issues. It's about actually getting those things right, that the Republican Party is not for the rich. The Republican Party has policies that will help low and middle income Americans get ahead. Whoever is the messenger for that, I am for that person. So you'll always hear me say, look, if it's Rick Perry, if it's Mike Huckabee, whoever it is, that number one, I think is going to be the way to win the primaries. And number two, it's just the right thing for the party in the country. Uh, Pat Benatar won once did intone that hell is for children. I think hell might be for a a Mitt Romney candidacy where he's talking all about the poor and the disadvantaged just based on what we think we know about Mitt Romney and his image last time around. I think other candidates like Marco Rubio are more natural champions of the poor and the working class than someone like Mitt Romney would be. Maybe not actually and maybe not fairly, but perceptually. That's a good point, but here's here's the thing. The person who was the big policy innovator on the Democratic side in 2008 was John Edwards, mm-hmm. who is a bona fide scumbag. He was the guy who put universal health care on the map. And then Hillary Clinton kind of nudged by Edwards, you know, kind of like, sort of, okay, like, I better come up with a plan, too. Uh, and then, uh, you know, President Obama 
did now President Obama had to do the same. But it was Edwards who was actually making this big argument about a new war on poverty and about, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, I think I wasn't a great messenger for anything, uh, but he did a good job of putting those issues on the map. So my thing is that I just want to get guys in the mix who feel as though they've got to talk about substance, they've got to advance ideas. Because certainly, like, in 2012, you know, it was incredible. The most substantive... Uh, you know, policy ideas we had were, you know, 999. Mm -hmm. Mitt Romney had some pretty solid ideas about things like regulation and, you know, uh, the Reagan economic zone, like a free trade idea. But these were things that put people to sleep. He couldn't answer some basic questions like, how are you going to be different from George W. Bush? Right. It, it stumped him. How does that stump you in 2012? That's crazy. So I think that I want this race to really be about everyone competing over being like, well, no, I'm the one with the smart ideas. No, I am. No, I am. And getting more people in that role, even if they're not great messengers, it's going to force the other people to do the same. Well, wouldn't a good young spokesman, I'm going to say men, men for this, like Scott Walker, obscure candidate nationally, but, you know, wins every attempt to get him out of office, wins actual elections, has big ideas, or Marco Rubio, or maybe Rick Perry could glom on to that. Guys who were recently in office, as opposed to Romney Huckabee and Jeb Bush, last elected to office in 2002, wouldn't they be more natural vessels for this message? You know, I'd put Jeb Bush in a different bucket from those other guys. Not because he's not uh, a bright, impressive guy or whatever else, but look, I don't think it makes sense to relitigate the Bush years. I actually think you need someone who can say, hey, yes, the Obama years, uh, a lot of things have gone wrong, but actually the Bush years were a problem too. We need to turn the page on that too. And I think it's just fundamentally going to be very difficult for Jeb Bush to do that. So I put Jeb Bush in a different bucket for that reason. And I agree with your broader point. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Marco Rubio in particular, someone that I've always been very impressed by. Here's a guy who puts in work. Uh, you know, he was a state lawmaker. And here he is among these candidates. He's probably the one who is just most solidly grounded on foreign policy issues with the possible exception of Rand Paul. Uh, but, you know, these are two guys who put a lot of energy and effort into that. I'm, I'm impressed. Scott Walker is someone who is obviously um, pretty weak on that side of things. And you made one really good point. So, Barack Obama won election in Illinois overwhelmingly. He crushed it. Yeah. Uh, George W. Bush, when he ran for re-election as governor of Texas, same thing, just overwhelming victory. Scott Walker has barely won by the skin of his nuts uh, every time he's won. And in a way, you could say, well, you know, that sucks. I mean, you know, could he even win Wisconsin? A fair point. But actually, you know, in a way, given how divided the country is, having someone who knows how to survive on somewhat hostile territory, you know, in what is, you know, very much a purple to blue state, mm -hmm. could actually be uh, you know, a pretty good thing. So, uh, but the thing about Walker is that I actually don't know what he thinks about all kinds of national issues. Ronald Reagan, everybody knew what he thought about everything because he had a radio show where he would just make commentaries on the Panama Canal Zone and about, you know, capital gains taxes and like everything. These guys are terrified of talking about issues. Which makes me sad because I'd like to know what Scott Walker thinks about Israel. You know what I mean? I'd like to because, you know, if he's going to run for president, that's what we're going to want to know. Raihan Salam, author of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream, columnist for Slate. Thank you, Raihan. Thank you very much, Mike. 
Do you know that Martin Luther King has been honored by two stamps from the U.S. Post Office? One a 15-cent stamp, one a 33-cent stamp. But do you know how they don't honor Martin Luther King? They close the post office on Martin Luther King Day. That's why I bring to you Stamps.com. Think about all that time you want to go to the post office, and it's closed because it's MLK Day. There's a better way to get postage. All you have to do is use what you have, your computer, your printer, get official U.S. postage, and the mailman picks it up, though also that doesn't happen on Martin Luther King Day. But still right from your desk at the fraction of a cost of an expensive postage meter stamps.com comes in if you use the promo code the gist you qualify for this special offer a no risk trial a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer which includes a digital scale and up to fifty five dollars in free postage here's what to do go to stamps.com right away click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. type in the gist that's stamps.com enter the gist So the other day, I quit the Fitbit in a snit. All right, it led to some good tabloid headlines. But it wasn't even a Fitbit. It was this PivLiv thing. You strap it on your hand. It tells you how fast you go or how much you walk. Or it really doesn't actually tell you much of anything. It was a little bit of a lie. Like, they tracked how much you slept. You want to know how they did it? You pressed a button, and then a little moon came up, said you were sleeping. And then when you woke up, you pressed the button again. What about getting up in the middle of the night for water? What about if you didn't go to sleep on time? The PivLiv didn't care. So I threw them all away and I said, these things are a joke. They're a lie. I'm blowing the whistle on them. Well, Jill Jill Duffy, who is a number of things, including an efficiency expert and a writer for PC Magazine, got in touch with me and said, Mike, you were had by the PivLiv, but I'm here to to defend the Fitbit and all that that represents. Hello, Jill. Hi, Mike. How you doing? So the PivLiv really is the RC Cola of Fitbits, or it's not even a Fitbit? Yeah, I think once you're spending less than $50 on any of these gadgets, you're not going to get something that's really high quality. So all the gadgets that I like, and I brought a number of them to show you today, um, all cost above $50, and some go all the way up to $450. So the big lie I thought with the PivLiv was it didn't really count steps. It just counted whenever you swung your arm. Right. So most of these things are working off of motion in general. Now, they have a 9.5 system that they use to sort of figure out whether you're walking or whether you're just jiggling your wrist around. Three-axis accelerometer, magnetometer, and gyroscope. So that information is the core data, and really any activity tracker can have those. Your phone has those in them. The real secret sauce is how you take all of that data and then figure out when is the person just moving their wrist around, typing on their keyboard, swinging their arms, and when are they actually walking. So that's the really hard nut to crack. And the companies that are doing it well, companies like Fitbit, uh, Basis, which is now owned by Intel, there's another company called Mio that I like, they've all spent a lot of time getting that software right and getting those algorithms right. So that's really the big difference between these higher-end trackers and something like the Pivotal Tracker. Will they tell you what they're doing, or are they pretty vague, like Google is with its algorithm? So they won't tell you the algorithm, because like I said, that's their secret sauce. That's how they're going to make their money. That's how they're going to differentiate. But the best ones really tell you a lot of detail about the activity that you're doing and the sleep that you get. So for example, I tracked my sleep last night. Um, One tracker was off by about 20 minutes for when I fell asleep. But they did tell me when I woke up, when I tossed and turned, when I was in light sleep versus deep sleep. 
And they did it automatically. They figured out just based on my motion, and some of them have heart rate sensors too. So if my heart rate drops, maybe my skin temperature goes up a little. Aha, that's an indication I've actually fallen asleep. So that's the kind of detail you really want to see more than just knowing how many steps you take. Yeah, exactly. And can they tell you why in your dream the llama ate your physics homework? Will they be able to do that? I hope so, one day. What else inside of you are they knowing? So your skin temperature is another indication. And that's only from wearing it on the wrist. They know your skin temperature. Right. So optical heart rate monitors became um, sort of viable to wear on the wrist maybe about a year or two ago. And the other thing that's really important about heart rate monitoring skin temperature, um, whether you're sweating, your perspiration, is it gives a more accurate indication of how many calories you're burning. Yes. So if it only knows how fast you're moving, it doesn't know if you're bicycling, if you're walking. But if it knows your heart rate, that's a much better indicator of how many calories you're burning. And it's also using data that you input yourself. So things like your sex, height, weight, age, all of that is going in together to figure out how many calories are you burning, what are you doing during the day, and how is that affecting your health? Take me through your wrists. Let's go one all by right. one. Oh, You've yeah, got so four on the left, three on the right? Okay, okay. So this is one of my favorite new ones. This is called Mio yeah. Fuse. It it's is just an a black band tracker. and I see no display. It does have a display, but yeah. it's hidden. There ah, it is. Ooh, um, it counts your activity all day long, but it's yeah. really, really good for heart rate training. So it has an indicator light on it. You turn on the heart rate monitor. When it sees your heart rate, it flashes different colors based Based on the heart rate zone you're in. Ooh. So if you want to go up a zone, down a zone, this is something, you know, athletes tend to do. Yeah. Um, it's really good for that. The is next it Neil one, Diamond endorsed? I don't think so. Uh, that's no. heart light. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's a great company. Yes. Uh, Basis Peak. This is brand new as of November. It also has a heart rate monitor, but its secret sauce is that it figures out automatically when you're walking running, sleeping, and bicycling. It's the only one that knows when you're bicycling. So it knows by the position of your wrist and how fast you're going. Yeah, and it's so cool, too. What about recumbent bicycling if I lived in Aspen, Colorado and recycled I don't know. I'd love to try that, though. I'd love to try that. But it's so cool because you can see an icon show up that says, like, you're bicycling now. So it gives you that instant confirmation that it's getting it right. The next one, this one is brand spanking new. This is the Wythings Activite Pop. Activite. Activite. Okay, with an like accent South on Park, it. Yeah. Um, it is more of a watch, really. So it's a classic analog watch. It has the hands that move around the dial. And then it has a second dial inside, and that tells you your progress toward your goal for total activity. So you go into this app and you say, I want to walk 10,000 steps in the day. It's about at the 50% mark right now. So I've probably walked about 5,000 steps today. Next one. Really slim and sleek. This one also looks like just a black band. This is by Garmin. So Garmin was always known for making really cool sports watches. And they decided, you know what, we we know this stuff inside and out. Let's try to make something that's appealing to the more casual fitness crowd. So this is the Vivo Smart. Same thing, counts all your steps all day long, all that stuff. The cool thing I like about it is it connects with your smartphone to push you notifications. Oh. So when I get a text message, it shows up here. I don't hear my phone ring. I don't feel it vibrate because it's in my handbag, but I feel it vibrate on my wrist. But from what I understand, it's pretty simple. Uh, you can't respond. You can't respond, yeah. but you can get those notifications. That's and there cool. are other smartwatches that you can have some kind of 
response to them. But well, you can't respond. As I've said before, we're all Roman emperors, and that's it. Kill the man who invented Garmin. Behead him. I need to respond. What? Um, okay, let's go to the other one. Okay, so I've got a Fitbit Charge. That's yeah. one of the latest ones from Fitbit. It has caller ID on it, which is sort of like the most entry-level point of being a smartwatch. But it's very, very accurate in terms of telling you how many miles you've walked. Yeah. Um, the sleep tracker is really good. Are all of these helpfully giving all this information to the NSA so that they can... <laughs> Help us in our fitness. I mean, this is really where I think this is going for the future, right? I think that the the real story here is that we're going to be able to collect big data, as it's called. I made the air quotes there. Um, Because it's kind of a junkie for a world. How many calories did the air quotes burn? (laughs) (laughs) Two calories for air quotes. But the idea is we're collecting a lot, a lot of information about ourselves. And if we can do that easily and passively in our daily lives, and then say 20 years from now, we see what kind of shape am I in? And what was I doing for those last 20 years? We can suddenly get really interesting information. Now, if we pair that with actual health and medical information, people on experimental drugs, what are they doing? How much are they moving? What are they eating? This could be huge because instead of having studies with 2,000 or 3,000 people, we have millions of people now and we can figure out how do these things all work together. So that's what I'm really looking forward to maybe 10 years from now. Or before an insurer decides on their rate, they make you wear it. And then there's a black market for people who match you generally but will be more active than you. You know, there are companies that issue (laughs) these to their employees and they have like little challenges. And I'm like, "Mm, that's dangerous, right? Well, no, it's good for you. I mean, you work with a lot of schlubs at PC Magazine. You're a gold (laughs) star. (laughs) So, okay. How have they changed your life? Can you put your finger on it? Yeah. Yeah. So lately I've started getting a little more serious about my health. I do track my calories. I do track how much I eat and what kinds of foods I eat. So I'm trying to up my protein. And on some of these platforms, there are leaderboards. And I became friends with some people who are like marathon runners. So I can see they're walking three times as much as I am. And that really totally motivates me. Like, I don't want to be at the bottom of the ladder. So that totally gives me a boost to try and make sure that I'm, I'm getting exercise, you know, five days a week or so. Um, so it, it really, I don't have a problem sleeping. Sleeping wasn't something I needed to fix. But just, you know, as I age, I really want to make sure that I'm getting enough exercise all the time, not just one or two days here and there, but like every day needs to count. So in that sense, I feel like they've been pretty motivational. Jill Duffy is senior analyst at PC Magazine. She's an efficiency expert. She has some, you know what, I'll, I'll link to your efficiency talks. Thanks, Jill. Thanks, Mike. And now another word from our sponsor, which in this case is a TV show, Friday Night Tykes. It is a new season of what's been called one of the most controversial shows on television. It's about 10-year-old boys playing a man's sport, being coached by men who sometimes act like 10-year-old boys. This is football. Friday Night Tykes. The new season premieres January 20th at 9 p.m. on the Esquire Network. And now the spiel giving offense in audio form. So the new issue of Charlie Hebdo had a print run of 5 million copies. Stores still can't keep it in stock. It more than doubles the French publishing record for best-selling issue of a newspaper ever. What this means is that there will be more than 5 million pictures of the Prophet Mohammed all over the country of France, where perhaps 10% of the population is Muslim. In America, where 1 or maybe 2% of the population is Muslim, and also very few, if any of these Muslims, have ever demonstrated a willingness to 
kill over depictions of the prophet. The top-selling newspaper here in America, the Wall Street Journal, did show the pictures. Here now is a snippet of a video on the journal's website. The cover of the prophet Muhammad was shown starkly. The first two pages included drawings by the slain cartoonists. One showed a well-known nun talking about oral sex, and the other showed Muslim, Christian, and Jewish leaders dividing up the world. The newspaper in the U.S., however, with the second largest circulation, did not show any cartoons of Muhammad. The New York Times thought Charlie Hebdo's latest issue was the top story of the day. But the only visual in the New York Times was of a grief-stricken illustrator explaining this decision, a hard one. New York Times editor Dean Bacay told his newspaper's ombudsman, We have a standard that is long held and serves us well, that there is a line between gratuitous insult and satire. Most of these are gratuitous insult. See, I think there is another consideration. I've spoken about it before. Most of the news organizations who have been quick to show the images have no reporters in the field in Muslim countries. Most of the ones who've been reticent to show it, like CNN and The Times, do have staff, stringers, reporters inside Afghanistan and Yemen and Iraq and Syria and Iran, places where these people really could be exposed. In fact, it's possible that The Times is getting strong advice from its security consultants not to publish. It's not even beyond the realm of possibility that The Times has a report or stringer who's actually been taken captive by an extremist group as we speak. That has actually happened before. So we don't know exactly what's going into their calculation. However, if you take Bacay at his words, this is a question of not giving offense. Well then, I was struck by what was on page four of today's paper where the lead story was on the Charlie Hebdo cartoons without the cartoons. Page four, this article, Newspaper in Israel scrubs women from a photo of Paris Unity Rally. It's about an ultra-Orthodox Jewish newspaper that Photoshop female leaders from that Paris rally because they don't think images of women should be shown due to concerns about modesty. Sort of like how Muslims don't think images of Muhammad should be shown out of concerns about piety. But of course, the Times had a journalistically useful side-by-side photo comparison. First, the ultra-Orthodox newspaper version, no ladies, and then the real one, with the ladies. What if that were to offend a certain population? Maybe the difference is that the population, the numbers of ultra-Orthodox is relatively small. Maybe it's that the Times feels comfortable in saying that these ultra-Orthodox Jews are off base but less comfortable wading into the mores of a religion that very few time staffers are a part of? Or is it that the objections of the Jews don't come with credible threats of death? Could be that. But listen to me. I'm so brave, right? I'm so righteous. Here I am scolding the Times for not publishing the Muhammad cartoons. But all I'm really doing is saying the words Muhammad cartoons. They're words spoken. They're not depictions. You know, there's no audio equivalent of displaying these cartoons. But what if there were? It got me to thinking about how different news organizations might cover a similar story in audio form. Good morning, Fond du Lac. Breaking news today, the objections of Lutherans statewide over a song that they say insults their belief system. The song has been described by radical Lutheran clerics as an affront to bodily distortion and symmetric gesturing, and therefore a violation of Lutheranic beliefs. Hear now that song. Good morning, Fond du Lac. We'll be covering this breaking news. 
Okay, that's sort of a best practices in covering the Lutheran hand jive kerfuffle, but other news organizations would not be so bold. This is the audio equivalent of the BBC or the Daily News, which only aired glimpses of the Muhammad cartoon or pixelated the cartoons. Hello and welcome to Heidi Ho Fresno, covering Fresno, Madeira and the Central Valley. Well, you've been hearing about the controversy surrounding the song deemed upsetting and offensive to Lutherans. Lutherans have been calling for the banning of the hand jive, described as a desecration of elbow to fingertip. Also, according to Lutheran Grand Mufti Lars Agardagardetson, it is an abomination against self-reference, as most songs about the hand jive also refer to the hand jive. Here now we will play you a slightly distorted snippet of the hand jive, in the spirit of teaching the controversy, while not appalling our Lutheran viewers. Go to HeidiHoFresno.com to hear three more seconds of the hand jive and tell us what you think. Or text us. Text 5551 if you agree we must be more sensitive to Lutherans. Or 5552 if, while chopping wood, you moved your legs and started dancing while gathering eggs. Bowed and clapped, you were only five, and you danced them all. You were born to hand jive. And here now would be how the New York Times might cover this story if it were to delve into Hand Jive Gate. A piece of music that has existed in recorded form for years has newly ignited a debate pitting religious sensitivities against what practitioners describe as a freedom of manual movement involving the thumb, forefingers, up to and including the wrist. The song, The Hand Jive, has been derided and defended across the upper Midwest and parts of Germany. A morning show in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, was reportedly threatened after airing snippets of the hand jive, said station managers who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they didn't wish to give nimity. We will be covering this story as it develops. Now back to our airing of the expurgated works of Shanana. <laughs> Well, today, Jess Swee, Danny Zuko. And that's it for today's show. Before just producer Andrea Salenzi was born late one night, her papa said everything's all right. Just intern Claire Tennisketter is aware when the bebop stork was about to arrive. Slate's managing producer of podcast, Joel Meyer, has long been doing the hand jive which in his case includes marking his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers is pretty straight-laced as Slate Podcast's executive producer. When he does the hand jive, he gets a little bit looser. If you want the gist on your device, you can go to iTunes and subscribe. You can get our newsletter through slate.com slash gist email, or download Yo! Should That Fail. We're on facebook.com slash slategist. There, you'll find a bunch of spiels you may have missed. All right, so I'll I'll admit it to you guys. I wasn't born to hand jive. It was thrust upon me. But I did grow up in a hand jiving community, and I yearned for it as I traveled the world. I came to realize that the hand jive was both the most minimal movement you could make and still get credit for some version of dancing, and also proof that if you put the Bo Diddley beat next to any nonsense rhyme, it just sounds good. Here, listen, you ready? Tonight, the New Orleans Pelicans face the Detroit Pistons. Bump a dump a dump, dump dump. But for the rest of you, thanks for listening. Dump a dump, dump, dump dump.
Hi, I'm Dan Coyce. And I'm Allison Benedict. On this week's episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, we talk about when to let your child quit an activity, and we talk to the author of an essay about parenting with chronic pain. Please search for Mom and Dad Are Fighting on iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts. 